Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Now a show that's going to give you the truth about the biggest epidemic of our times. We're all a little crazy. Welcome back to another episode of We're All a Little Crazy. I am one of your co-hosts, Eric Hewson, along with sports business reporter Darren Ravel mental health advocate and NHL great Theo Fleury. Guys, a lot happened this week in news in general. Um, I'm thinking to most recent what happened with the Facebook whistleblower. Some of what was revealed, still some of it being hearsay, but but documentation there about what Facebook and or Instagram um, may have known, may currently know about the way in which they appeal to uh, young women young girls um its impact on mental health generally not just in that demographic specifically so certainly want to dive into that area so second we heard our friend robin leonard been pretty vocal about the jack eichel situation in buffalo where jack's doctors personal doctors are giving him one opinion the team is giving him another opinion what's come out in the nhl cba is that it's actually the choice of the team which is different than it is in other leagues. So we're going to dive into that. And Robin revealed some things not only related to player choice with their bodies, but related to some of the activities that he's seen, um, allegations that he's made about teams that he's been a part of, teams that other players have been a part of, um, and the use or misuse of things like Amien, Xanax. So we're going to dive into that. I thought another interesting topic right now would be the return to office and the you know balance between you got a lot of companies saying they're going to go fully virtual. You got some who are saying they're going to split. Some who are going to say they're going back full time. What's that going to look like? So thinking of a guest for this week, and, and we had been connected through another means and so excited to have him on. Um, Brian Cuban, long bio here, but but an important one. An attorney. He's been a best-selling author. We're going to talk about one of his books that's uh, coming out soon. Speaker, activist. He's an authority on male eating disorders, which is a niche. I mean, it's it, it's more and more I'm hearing it, but it's it's just it's such an important topic to bring up because we don't have enough people uh, speaking in that space. Drug addiction, rehabilitation, alcoholism, lawyer and activist for the First Amendment issues, which is obviously a hot topic right now and hate speech. The brother of the Dallas Mavs owner, Mark Cuban, resides in Dallas, Texas himself. Just going to give you the titles of his first two books. We're going to have him tell us more about his third book. But first book was Shattered Image, My Triumph Over Body Dysmorphic Disorder. And um, The Addicted Lawyer, which I was joking with Theo when I read this title beforehand, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption, that Theo could have written that book. (laughs) just changed out The Addicted Lawyer to The Addicted Hockey Player. Written Um, it? I lived it. (laughs) Um. (laughs) So, Brian, first off, welcome. It's awesome hey, to have you. thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, our, our yeah, pleasure, thanks man. For, thanks for coming on, Brian. It's uh, it, it's really, you know, and, and Brian, you're you're vocal, right? Like, you, you're you're out there. You you give your opinion, which is awesome. And so, you know, one, I think this 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 conversation is going to happen organically. But I brought up that first topic of what we saw happen with it, it was a sixty minute piece with the whistleblower. We have no idea if it was connected to the outages that we saw the next day. We do know that Facebook was, was on Capitol Hill and was was um, being questioned today. What came out of at least what was revealed from from what the whistleblower shared was some some s- specific content related to the way in which Facebook and Instagram co-owned. Uh, knows that their algorithms and the way in which you know their content is shown to users potentially harms people's mental health, sure. some women specifically, and then specifically there were things related to eating disorder. So just want to get your take on that, your opinion on that. Sure, and uh, that was more what I paid attention to. Uh, the congressman who created the fake Instagram profile 
of the young girl. And, uh, and it turned out that she was being pushed to uh, pro-anorexia groups and things like that, that are supposed to be banned on Instagram and were supposed to have been banned years ago. I mean, first we have to start out with the concept that uh, everyone, there is no one who doesn't look in the mirror at one time or another, a young man, young girl, teenage girl, bright, old Brian, who doesn't look in the mirror and say, man, that sucks, right? Uh, you know, I'm looking at my hair, yeah, it's going and this and that, a few extra pounds. That's normative discontent in society. E everyone goes through that. But when you're, when you're young and your brain is still forming and there's so much peer pressure to look like what we see, which is different than in my day, right? The images I saw, my images were the people I saw every day. This is before the internet. The kids who were getting their first dates in school at a time when going viral meant 15 kids in the lunchroom knew you had a crush on some girl. And so things are much different today where people are uh, airbrushing their photos. And that seems to be the norm, right? Affected uh, by people, Brian, affected by people who they don't know will not know, will never see in person, don't know what they look like in person for real. I mean, that's the craziest thing from all this. And then, uh, you know, I'm just adding this part, but like, actually, those people aren't even doing the real things that they show that they're doing. Like girls going to a beach to prove that they're at a beach, even though they're not laying down at a beach, they're just taking pictures to show that they're at a beach. That's right. And, what, and, they're, and they're selling an image and these, these are Instagram, you know, whatever they're called. And they're selling an image and they're selling an idea that if you look like me, you'll be popular. You'll, uh, you know, and you'll have all these things. And you have to remember the human brain doesn't uh, fully develop till you're about 24, 25 years old. So it becomes that's, very that's, easy to buy that's, in. I'm that's sorry. the female brain. The male brain takes even longer. Yeah, so it, it can be very easy for a young, uh, impressionable male or, uh, or, or a young teen, a male teen, to uh, develop body image issues, especially if you're already predisposed to, to them, either genetically or socially, uh, a lot of fat shaming at home or what's ever going on. You're, maybe you're being bullied at school. That could lower the threshold of normative discontent, right, where it becomes much easier to trip over into an eating disorder such as anorexia or bulimia, binge eating disorder or something of like that. And we know that eating disorders, particularly anorexia, have the highest mortality rate uh, of any psychological illness. They're now challenged by opioid use disorder because of all the o overdoses, but eating disorders are particularly deadly. And uh, in my day, I suffered from two of them. I Traditional bulimia, binging and purging, and I also suffered from uh, exercise bulimia, which is obsessive compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. And if you want to know how insidious these body image issues can be and how difficult, you know what my greatest struggle is today at 60 years old? Not cocaine, not alcohol. Uh, my body image, my, my relationship with food and exercise. That is my greatest recovery struggle today. And, and Brian, you, you bring that up, which is fascinating because, you know, Theo talks about being an alcoholic. You're always an alcoholic, right? I, I know I'm a work addict. We were talking about behavior addictions, right? I still can't get out of that. And I, I think it's it's cool to hear you say I still struggle with it for someone who's been able to be an advocate about talking about getting over the hardest part of it, right? Is it's something you're always going to struggle with. As you dive into that, what, what I'm curious to hear your take on, I'm sure it's opinion, but maybe you have some stats to tell us. So look, the stats that came out from Facebook were about young, young women, young girls, right? Do you think that with, with respect to eating disorders, is it that it's more prevalent in women or is it That's that more question. women talk about That's it? That's a great question. And for some historical context, you have to remember, I developed bulimia in 1980. Okay, this was before anyone was talking about eating disorders for men or women, uh, before Karen Carpenter passed away from complications related to anorexia in 1983, bringing eating disorders into the pre-digital national spotlight, but also cementing the stereotype as a woman's disorder. Here are the stats. 30% uh, of more or more of all those suffering from eating disorders are male. 
and that is supported by the data. Though only one in 10 will seek treatment. That is how shameful eating disorders are for men, uh, even in 2021. And it kind of irritated me to an extent that Facebook, it, although it's a huge problem, right? And because the congressman focused, put a young girl out there. But if you put a young boy out there with a the fake Instagram account, you would you would also see uh, similar behaviors being driven to, you know, maybe uh, maybe the, uh, the the muscle being we call it muscle dysmorphia, where you have to have the lean look or the muscular look. Which uh, I was I was addicted to steroid anabolic steroids and all and, and almost lost my leg uh, from using a dirty needle. And so I think we would see maybe different types of body image issues, but you would see those for men too, or for young teens. I want I want to I want to go back to uh, just the current news, just to get everyone focused on this. Obviously, because of the testimony that happened on Tuesday, just some of the numbers that were mind blowing that came from the Facebook whistleblower on Facebook and Instagram, just a day after Facebook and Instagram went down. And when it came back up, people clearly needed a puff because I'm looking at my stories and the amount of people looking at my stories was up like one and a half X versus normal because they needed to get back. So talk about addiction. It's funny how you think about social media and addiction and this coming off when it wasn't available to people. But anyway, uh, the whistleblower uh, said that um, they had uh, the internal Facebook documents, Instagram documents that said that five to 6% of 14 year olds admitted to being addicted to Instagram. Admitted, 14 year olds, five to 6% had the self-awareness to say that they are addicted, meaning that they do it despite the fact that there's negative consequences and they know it. And if you think about five to 6% admitting it, what's the real number? Absolutely, I mean, that, Absolutely. That is just beyond mind blowing to me. And you can make those same correlations across the board with eating disorders. Uh, like I said, only one in 10 male will get treatment. Addiction, right? It's not as shameful and stigmatized as it used to be, but it's still, Many people, I've been called a giant, I'm sure, you know, Theo can agree with this. I've been called, I've been called a crackhead. And I always joke and say, nah, it was powder. <laughs> and uh, I've been called a junkie, I've been called this and that. And and so there's still, people think it's a moral failing. And so there's, uh, there's a lot of shame there. But with Instagram, anything that triggers the dopamine receptors yeah. you know, has, has the ability to cause problems. Because you have to see that high. Brian, it, it, so I, I shared an article with Darren and Theo. I put it up on social today because it wowed me. It was a Wall Street Journal article. I don't know if you saw it. It came out in August, but I just come across it. It was talking about how we swim in dopamine with our phone. And if you think about when we were all growing up, when you to get the dopamine hit that, that Darren was joking about but is serious – you played tag outside, and when you tag someone and they were it, that was a dopamine hit. When you hit a basket, that was a dopamine hit. But we had to chase after that dopamine hit, and we'd get it every five minutes, every 10 minutes, right? And we'd go after it. Now with your phone, with the text message, with the email, with the DMs, with the like numbers, with the follow numbers, we're swimming in the dopamine. And then what the science tells us is the receptors then downregulate. So we have this period where we have this influx of so much dopamine from using the phone let's say that I'm using kids as an example, but we're, we're just as guilty that parents take the phone away or the, the tablet away from the kid. All of a sudden the, the receptors are downregulated. They feel a crash at that point. Absolutely. And, and you can go to back towards it. Yeah, and you go exactly. to withdrawal. Absolutely. I mean, just a real world example, adults, even old adults like me are not immune to it. I have a new book coming out and you look at the Amazon rankings, right? Yep. And it goes up and the dopamine, it does better and the dopamine receptors fire. You're like, yes. Then you look, what happened? It just dropped 20,000 points and you're all depressed. Yep. So it can, uh, it, it can, it can affect all of us and it does, but how does it impact your behavior? Does it drive you to destructive behavior? dysfunctional behavior that's what i look at but do you but using the example because darren was very darren was very open with us last show when theo and i were describing our addictions mine again and we have many right at different levels mine being more focused on work theo and some of the substances and stuff uh growing up when you think about your darren addiction, on work and phone yeah, 
yes, Darren, I'm working for, and I was, you know, so I was getting there. So because, because with Brian, with you noticing and being self-aware that, well, I, I don't know that this is an addiction, but an example of going after the dopamine hit of how many books that I sell, how many books that I sell or how much interest is there. Do you see that, that, that connection back to the control that you needed and what you were dealing with, with some kind of addiction related to food when you were younger. Do you think when you were younger, you noticed that it was, I know you said you noticed that it was wrong, but did you notice that it was an addiction back then? I know. I mean, uh, there's an old saying, cocaine's fun till it's not. Right. And, and so there was, there was a time when I, I mean, if someone mentioned recovery, I'd say, you gotta be kidding. I'm having a blast. The dopamine's firing and everything, you know, and, uh, I had the money and I mean, there was privilege there, obviously. And so, no, I, I wouldn't have, I didn't want recovery. Right. Uh, you have to remember, I, I've been to a psychiatric hospital twice. And the first time was after my brothers came into my house with a 45 automatic on my nightstand when I decided to end my life by suicide. And that wasn't, that wasn't my quote unquote rock bottom. Uh, I fought tooth and nail to be left alone. And I was right back out doing blowing and going. So I, I wouldn't have wanted it. And it's, it's just hard to say at what point uh, you decide that enough is enough. I think the right circumstances have to come together. And this could be for internet addiction, uh, whether it's uh, social media, Instagram addiction. How is it impacting your life? Uh, what problems is it causing? And you know, will these variables, will these genetic, environmental, and social var variables all come together at the right time? and uh, to drive someone forward into a better lifestyle the issue we have right now brian uh, and i'll get the i'll let you get in but the issue we have right now brian is that phone addiction instagram addiction facebook social addiction no it doesn't have the outside negativity that is needed and it doesn't cost and, anything and it right right or it does cost something but it doesn't, there is no, when, when you're doing the cocaine, there's the outside pressure of, oh, maybe uh, I'll get caught by the police. Maybe I'll go get thrown in jail. Again, the outside negative consequences of social addiction, you know, it's just not there. And, and it might take, that might mean that there might be, have to have a lot more things to go on um, in, in, in order for that pressure to be ratcheted up so that people get serious yeah. about it. You make a great point, Darren, and that's especially true for teens, right? Who's paying attention? Uh, you can isolate yourself. And when the crash comes, who are you telling? A teen may not be telling anyone, which can lead into self-harm, uh, self-cutting. A story I don't tell too much is that uh, I used to, when I felt that I was stupid or uh, people used to call me dumb bunny, I remember, I would punch myself in the face till I was black and blue uh, and uh, and a form of self-harm, right? But I was also in my 20s and guys in their 20s don't self-harm. So I just sloughed it off. But for teens, uh, where where are the stop gaps? Where are the barriers? You can, you can isolate yourself and you can engage in self-harm. The suicidal thoughts develop and it can end up tragic and social media uh, obsession and addiction can certainly lead to those behaviors and thought patterns. It's interesting. I mean, you I, and Theo, I know you had something to chime in here. I just want to share with what Brian, when you say teens, and I think a lot of us are deferring to teens, you know, Theo and Darren have kids who are teens. I don't have kids yet, but we heard about the fa I, I'm I'm raising my hand as we're talking because everything that we're hearing, as much as I, I would like to not admit it, I'm, I'm addicted. If, if I, Darren, if I got that survey to me, like it, it, it's not the like numbers and stuff like that. I'm addicted to, did I get a new email that we have a new organization that we're working with? Did I get a new email that a new doctor joined our Alliance or a, a DM from someone saying that they want to collaborate with us? This is what yeah. I'm addicted to. I, I, I mean, that, that would be, I would have to know about if, is that impacting your life in a negative it way? It is, it is, Brian, you know, and, and I look, I, I'm very introspective. Theo and Darren know this. It'd be different if it was like, okay, I have a good balance between I can get my butt off the couch and go take a walk and know that it's good for me and I can step away from that. I will defer doing those good things that I know are good for me as an advocate who talks about these things because of how good it feels to get those emails yeah. and those texts. And, and you just hit on you just hit on the uh, the keyword there, balance. We're all adults. We're all grown adults. Our brains are developed. 
we have life experience, we understand what balance is. And sometimes even if we don't take advantage of it, I mean, you meditate, you practice mindfulness, you go out and get your exercise. A 13 and 14 year old doesn't have that is probably not going to have that kind of balance. They're in, they're right there on that phone attached to it, the high, the low, the high, the low. And again, that uh, normative discontent level keeps dropping, dropping and dropping. All of a sudden you're, you, you, all of a sudden you're restricting your food intake. All of a sudden you're binging and purging all of a sudden you're self-harming. Uh, it, and, and again, I'm not a parent and parents can't be there all the time. But I believe that what you can do is lay a pathway through education and how you speak, what comes out of your mouth. Uh, children. The, are the being- most important thing for a parent, the most important thing for parents right now, because there's so many ideas and there's, there's so many things. It is so hard to parent is to talk about what is real and what is not, because if the kid themselves can understand what is real and what is not, they can they can then make decisions on how they should act, right? But, so, but, like, but Dar- Darren, I'm I'm going to stop you there. Only and, and Brian and Theo can agree or disagree with me on this. I think that's a piece of it. What's real and what's not. But then your focus is on the social media's impact of people comparisons comparing themselves and i do think that's a big impact but even if you tell a kid something's real something's not that doesn't mean that their brain doesn't keep getting dopamine when they keep going the phone and refreshing whether it's real or it's not so i think what brian's talking about with balance i think understanding what human to human connection does for us understanding what being in the presence of someone else and giving a hug or getting a hug or forming a relationship with someone that's part of balance that we need to teach too you know, there's a guy, I, I'm, I'm sure you've all heard of Chris Heron. Yep. Right? Uh, former NBA player, Celtics, and the Cleveland played for Cleveland. Fresno State. Uh, yeah, Fresno State. And uh, got, it, got addicted to heroin, uh, heroin and opiates. And, uh, you know, lost his career, wrote a book, had the 30 for 30. He has something that, that is just wonderful, wonderful that can apply across the board. Instead of talking about the worst day, and I'm attributing this to him, this is his deal, talk about the first day. And... When you see when you see that your teen is spending what may seem like an enormous amount of time looking at pictures on Instagram or whatever, maybe the conversation should be what about what you're looking at changes how you feel and why do you want to change how you feel? What feelings are you experiencing from looking at that you think you that you are not getting in you know in your day to day life? Yep, and, 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 and those the- conversations are important. Brian, this is going to bring Theo in on it because it was a question I was going to ask you, but it relates to what Theo shared to us about his addiction story is Theo has shared so much of the difficult things that he went through as a child, the the rape from the coach, uh, some of the difficult things with his parents growing up in the household and how his addictions got him to not have to face those difficult challenges. When you look at something as specific as take the cocaine out of it for a second from a substance abuse perspective, when you look at your eating disorders, do you see a correlation between that was something I could control relative to other things that were going on in my life? Absolutely. You- it was the only thing I had control over in my life. Yep. And I, I, I remember the exact moment uh, when I decided that my life was out of control and how I could get you know the illusion of control back. Uh, there was a lot of fat shaming in my household. Well, my mom uh, was fat shamed by her mother, who was probably fat shamed by her mother. I come from an Eastern European Jewish family, a very dysfunctional kind of, you know, the, the Jewish mother, grandmother around food. And my mother had a very verbally and mentally abusive relationship with her grandmother, who she says was bipolar. And that kind of stuff runs downhill, right? So I was fat shamed. Bingo. What's bingo. That? He said bingo. 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 Yeah, so that's yes, runs that's- downhill. And I don't blame my mom. There's a difference between cause and correlation. She was uh, dealing with her own mental health issues. And I've, I don't tell anyone else what to do, but I've come to terms with all of that. But uh, after being fat shamed and I was bullied in high school and even physically assaulted because uh, from kids who thought I was too fat to wear these bell-bottom disco pants Mark had given me. <laughs> and uh, I wore them all the time and they fit more fun, but I had to jump up and down spray the water bottle. My butt looked like 15 cats trying to get out. And these kids walking home from school physically assaulted me, tore the pants off me, threw them out in the busy street. And uh, down in my Fruit of the Loom tidy whities my Pittsburgh Pirates t-shirt and my tube socks and my Keds. 
And that was a very traumatic incident. And I, it was so traumatic, I could tell you, show you exactly where it happened in Pittsburgh. So when I went on to Penn State, I carried that with me. I didn't tell a soul. And I remember my dad drove me up to Penn State, and it was the first day. And I'm looking out the window of my dorm, and I make eye contact with this early, curly brown-haired girl. And I had never kissed a girl, held a girl's hand, been on a date. All the things that I associated with love and acceptance, right? I was classic middle child syndrome. I was shy. I was withdrawn, blah, 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 blah. But it wasn't, and, and I start sweating. And I imagine within 15 seconds, okay, we're going to get married. We're going to date. We're going to get married. We're going to have two and one half children. And it wasn't a smile. It wasn't a smile. It was a smirk. She cupped her hands around her mouth, looked at her friend, looked back at me and yelled, ugly, ugly. And now I'm not the first kid that's had a nasty thing said to him. Another kid may have said ugly back, flipped her off or whatever, right? But we all respond based on our genetics or social environmental program. And I already felt ugly. And I remember right then thinking that my life was out of control. And what did I have control over, guys? What was the only thing I had control over in my 18 years old? Food. So I would take control of my life by restricting my food intake because I had control over that. I would take my life under control by binging and purging because it gave me 15 or 20 seconds of peace before the shame swept in. That I had control. I owned my eating disorders. They belonged to me. I owned my alcohol addiction. That It belonged to me. And I wasn't going to let anyone take away my line, dirty line of security blanket. Yes, control. And, and it sounds like that was your identity. Wait, Brian, how long did that take for you? So you just put together that story. When I confronted my anxiety and understood everything that built up to it, uh, it took me like another five years after that to understand my story. You just put this together conveniently wrapped up in a bow. But how long did over two decades? Are, yeah, over two. I struggled with eating disorders for over two decades into my 40s. Right. But and but you didn't like put it in. You just kept going and going and going. I think it's important for people who listen to the show to know that that story comes out in a nice package with a bow. Oh, but because actually, I'm a public speaker. <laughs> because I'm, I've told right, the story. Right, but it took but it took you so long to understand how it got there. Yes, yes. Oh, of course. I'm still in therapy today, trying to understand myself. So are uh, we all. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I talk to a therapist every week. So I'm continually trying to do better and understand myself. And as I said, Darren, my greatest struggle today is still body image. It's still body image. Uh, body image issues are insidious and... Uh, yeah, but, but look, they are not confronted early. But but look what he went through. You know, the trauma that you experienced through those years, like that becomes part of your DNA. Absolutely. Absolutely. Know? We and, are all cumulative snapshots of trauma of, of good things and bad. Our our but our body, the body keeps the score, right? Yeah. And so uh, we are all snapshots of trauma to some degree or another. How we define that trauma is up to the person, right? My, yeah. It was very traumatic for that girl to call me ugly. Another guy might have flipped her the bird and never thought about it again. Yeah, but you had a, you had a cumulative, cumulative issues leading up to that incident. You, That's you, right. You, and I didn't start therapy to my 40s. Right. Exactly. And so... You know, what I know about DNA is you can actually change it, but it takes, you know, decades of self-reflection and, 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 you know, not a lot of people, not a lot of people can self-reflect. Well, it's, uh, I mean, that's, you know, that's the process of building resilience, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that's, uh, it, it, it occurs at different places for everyone. People are, some people build it uh, easier than other people. But when, when we again, when we when we circle back to Instagram, this is why how parents talk to their children, in my opinion, is so important. Because once the brain, in my opinion, and this isn't a uh, clinical opinion, I'm only an expert in my own story, nothing else. Uh, but once the brain wires itself to uh, constantly talk yourself down, right? Constantly look in the mirror and see something that really isn't there that can become very difficult to unwire uh, as we get older. It is why anorexia becomes so difficult to treat the older someone gets. It becomes much more difficult to treat 
as someone gets in their 40s and 50s and things like that. Brian, can you give us a, a, a look? You're being open. You've been so open about so many different things with respect to eating disorders, especially you have four guys talking right now. And I think there's going to be a lot of guys that listen to this who are going to want to know what are the signs in themselves, physical signs, what are like, like action signs and physical signs of eating disorders. I know that's a very broad question because it is, and it's types. kind of a clinical question. Uh, yeah. Because you have to remember, you're, you're saying eating disorders when there are so many different ones. Sure, exactly. Okay? There's uh, there's bulimia. There are many different types of bulimia. There are different types of anorexia. There's binge eating disorder. There's muscle dysmorphia, which some people think is an eating disorder, and some people don't. That's the uh, kind of the quote-unquote addiction to being lean and muscular, where you start mm -hmm. uh, abusing supplements and move into anabolic steroids like I did. I was huge at one time, but uh, it didn't make me feel any better when I looked in the mirror. Uh, I still saw this fat. So I, my, if someone is in the middle of an eating disorder, it, it's going to be really tough to step back. Like Theo, right? When you're in the middle of your cocaine addiction or your alcohol, you, we don't have the self-awareness to step back. That's why it's an addiction. But I think there are many different signs a parent could look for. And what I would do is I would refer to the parent to the NIDA website, National Eating Disorders Association, Eating Disorder Hope. There are many different websites that give parents wonderful tips on how to recognize the sign of growing body image issues in their children that can uh, escalate into eating disorders or uh, other other uh, destructive behavior. I, I'll, I'll share from a personal perspective, you know, Brian, through this organization, I try to take at least one personal call a day from, you know, someone who's suffering with something, a parent. In the last month, five of the people I've spoken with were either the parents of or the child themselves, male, suffering with an eating disorder. Sure. I don't know if that's it, that they're getting more comfortable because folks like we, we work with a gentleman named Mike Marjama who played at. I know, uh, I know Mike. Okay, uh, you know Mike. Okay, yeah, Mike awesome. was a Nita, Mike was a Nita spokesman for a while. Good guy. Yep, really good guy. And and your willingness to be open, obviously, is what the reason why the name of the organization is same here is when they see someone say the same thing they're going through. Now all of a sudden, I've got someone I can relate to. It's not so scary exactly. anymore. Um, it, 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 it's just, it's, I always find it's an interesting topic of it's a chicken or I don't even know if it's a chicken or an egg thing as much as we don't know what the real answer is. Is, are, are there, is there more of it now within men, within boys, or are there more talking about it? <laughs> I think we definitely have a greater level of dis body discontent, uh, just because of social media. Now I would have to look at the studies and, and see what, uh, uh, what they say, but to me, it just seems like common sense that there's going to be a greater level of body discontent. Now, that body discontent isn't an eating disorder, right? Body discontent is the number of people who uh, just don't feel good about themselves. And I think, yeah, uh, because of uh, these perfect images and that we see on Instagram or whatever, TikTok, that we certainly that the studies would probably bear out that there is a much greater level, certainly in teens, of body discontent. Well, one of the I don't know if, what, what you would call it, but a side effect of trauma, and I would say 99.9% .9 of the people that I uh, work with or are around is I'm not good enough. And that comes from experiencing trauma in your life, you know? And, and you know, to overcome that, you know, takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength and the and it takes a lot of support. Yeah, and the willingness to go to any length to stop the behavior. And the pro, you're you're right, Theo. And as adults, we get that, but as a teen, that's probably wouldn't yeah. register, right? But, but so we're that's not, why we're so that messaging support. isn't happening. That messaging isn't happening. It's it's because of social media that that message is not there. Yeah, because and, because because if we stop causing trauma then kids are going to be way more well adjusted and more open and more willing to talk about things that are bothering them but because of because of social media and because we're afraid of you know this this image that you know is, is out there 
That's why we're in the state that we're in. Why? Why is mental health, you know, the biggest epidemic on the planet? Well, well because- let's be clear. I want to make it clear. I'm not demonizing social media. I, I, I there are plenty. I can. There are plenty of places to get support on Facebook. Yeah. Right? Whether it's addiction. Uh, I was in a support group when my father was succumbing to dementia. Uh, I was so, so social media can be a great a power a, a great power of of mental health support, but but it can also drag teens down into the uh, lowest of lows in terms of how they see themselves and body contentment. And that's and and so who does the re- so does Facebook have a responsibility to moderate this content and do better? Absolutely, but I think also parents have a responsibility to message properly. Does that mean your teen is going to take the messaging? No, you can't, you know, you, there's no way you can going to be able to stop your teen from that first joint, right? Uh, with all the messaging in the world, if the teen succumbs to peer pressure. And so the, the issue becomes is what are you going to do? How are you going to, how are you going to talk to your teen about that after that first joint? And I'm not demonizing marijuana either. Maybe it's the first line, the first joint or whatever, but you can't lock them in a room. So what can you do? Positive messaging, uh, learn how to talk to them. And what I see, I talk to a lot of parents, especially around addiction. And what I tell the parents is, well, how are you educating? They, they're lost. How are you educating yourself, right? Because you can't, you, you know, you, you have the power of supervision and the legal power of supervision, but your teen's going to go out and live their life. How are you going to massage the road they take, even if you can't force them down the road. And so I encourage parents to educate themselves about eating disorders, about body image, about especially about language, the language they use around food, how they talk about their own bodies in front of their teens. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, the, the, it's interesting because the analogy you can make, we do work in schools and we always tell schools, we got to get your teachers healthy and your administrators healthy before we get your students healthy. Because if the adults in the room are not understanding themselves, it's very hard to impart that on the kids. I think where, where Brian, I think and where this conversation can get really interesting, where Theo is going on the social media side of things, not to throw the totality of social media down the, the, the drain, is there is some responsibility from an algorithm perspective. Now, we don't know what the inner workings of algorithms are other than it would appear to be the allegations that were thrown out there, I will tell you from running a page how much I complain to Darren and Theo about this all the time. You put a message out there of hope, of healing, of togetherness. It's not as volatile as divisiveness. Absolutely. You know, and and, and so th- these companies, like it's not, it's not so far-fetched to believe these companies make money when there's more engagement. There's more engagement when you get people emotionally drawn in. Emotionally drawn in comes from getting angered okay, there's more divisive messages that they put out to people. Hey, absolutely. And I'm not, I'm not immune yeah. to that on social media either, right? Right, right. Uh, you know, popping off and this and that. But I could get on Instagram right now. Obviously, this is kind of more my wheelhouse. I could get on Instagram right now after all of this and still find Finspiration yes. uh, pages, still find pro-anorexia pages. Uh, and there's got to be a point where Facebook just can't default too well. We remove it as fast as we can. You have to do better. Yeah. Okay. You have to do better. I don't know how you do better, but you're making billions of dollars to do better because you can say, well, we get to it as fast as we can, but that life is someone trips from anorexia into suicidal thoughts and there's a strong correlation and ends their life by suicide that there's no coming back. Right. Yep. I just, I, 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 I would say that, you know, Ever since I've I've watched uh, Senate hearings for a long time, and a lot of this is grandstanding, and all they do is, for the most part, you know, just prove and show that they really care. The difference here versus a lot of the things that I've watched before is that with the whistleblower, the the insight of the internal stuff that these guys understand, given where it ends up is criminal (laughs) this is this is not we would like in a better circumstance for you guys to act better better given where where, what the consequences are this is criminal and given some of the answers today what they know about you know what they see 
uh, I sure as hell hope that um, that Darren, I'm going to throw I'm going to throw something in there that the three of you again I think will be interested in because you all three are publicly vocal about politics. I'm going to I'm going to take a step back and be apolitical in terms of sides here, and I'm going to say I'd like to see the politicians show us at Nacho's grandstand because I think those very politicians who are showing their muscle or flexing their muscle in these Senate hearings are the same ones not doing anything about it because they get contributions. And so at a certain point, someone has to be held accountable for this because how many times have we seen Zuckerberg's face, Jack's face up and, and whether it's on the video because it's COVID or whatever it is in person, we see this happen over and over again and then nothing comes from it. And, oh. and, and yeah, right. go ahead. Brian. I mean, a great, a, a great it, it's a different, uh, it, 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 it's a different topic, but a great example is uh, Facebook and uh, Holocaust now. Back in 2008, I, I made international news because I confronted them about having Holocaust now content on their on their website and which prohibits hate speech, right? Yep. And uh, as I, as a Jew, and I think a lot of people consider that hate speech. And I got invited to Facebook. I thought it was all show. You, they didn't ban Holocaust and how content till last year. So that was over 12 years it took them to do anything. And I can tell you right now that their response on Instagram's uh, pro uh, inspiration and and, uh, and pro anorexia and pro eating disorder content means was they're not doing going to do anything. Their response was, "We take it off as fast as we can." That is the response. We're not going to do anything different than we've been doing. And so, what has to happen? for uh, them to actually take action that improve that uh, so young girls and young boys are not being drawn to these sites. Uh, I don't know. I mean, because they're making it clear that they're not going to do anything differently. I, the, the one action that I've heard, which is sounds like a progress, is that Instagram is not going to release this version that was targeted towards 14 and under. I think that's a good a good thing. But mm -hmm. but with the 14s to Darren stats, I think that's grossly underreported, Darren. I'm sure you do as well in terms of the kids that are admitting that it's five or 6% addicted. I'm sure if they learned what addiction was, <laughs> the number would be significantly higher that, or if they were able to be honest about something that's a yeah. little bit scary to be I, honest. That's just it. I, I, I'd have to see whether they defined addiction in the study because I'm always, a child saying they're addicted to something doesn't right. have a lot of meaning to me. Right, right, right. They're on it a lot. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so, Brian, I think another interesting angle it was brought up at the beginning of the show, and, and it helps turn a little bit off off of the social media pieces. Although this story started on social media, you know, it's very well known. Your family, your brother owns the Dallas Mavericks, and so we're pretty close friends with Robin Lerner, the goalie for the Golden Knights. Brought up the Jack Eichel situation, which again, to review for everyone, was Jack has a slip disc, a herniated disc um, in his neck has a certain procedure for a disc replacement that he wants to get done. The team wants him to get a fusion done. Um, there's difference of, of opinions in terms of what will get the best outcome now versus in Jack's case, he wants to think long-term. Apparently, if you get the replacement, you're not going to need multiple surgeries down the road. In the, in the, in the NHL CBA, which has now obviously come, come to, to, um, you know, to come to light, the players association gave the teams the right to make the final say on that. I haven't checked the other leagues. I, I don't know if we can on, on if we know it on between the four of us, but I know in the NFL, you got an Aaron Rodgers, you got a Tom Brady, and maybe this is why, because the big players spoke up and their faces of the league, but the CBA was done in such a way that the players have the final say on who their surgeon is and, and, uh, and what the surgery is that they get done. Do you have an opinion one where I mean I mean you're making an investment as an owner in a player, right? So I understand that part of it, but that player is also living with their body the rest of their life. So so where do you find the balance? You're asking me. I mean, I'm not an owner, remember? Right, right, right. <laughs> I have no connection. Not, I don't I don't mean that you're speaking for Mark, but just hearing that and being in a round sport. Well, I want to be careful. I, I want to be careful here because I also want don't want to start getting into vaccine correlations, okay? Because I know that's gonna happen when we start talking about that. But uh Fair. I mean that that that's a tough decision, right? It that uh, that's something that the CBAs negotiate and uh, have a strong have a strong players union, you know, right. to get what you need. So I, I, it would be hard for me to. I'm not, I've never been an athlete. 
Uh, I've never played professional sports. So if there's anyone who has no credibility to talk about what decisions an athlete should make for their body, it's me. All right. So, so then let me ask you, hopefully what's an easier question to answer is being around a team as much as you have been, as much, you know, you, you're going to give us what that amount is. Do you, do you see that athletes would be more likely than the, the average citizen to engage in behavior that is related to substances? Not that you've seen the actual behavior, meaning the way that an athlete is wired. What, no, the, the, I, no, I mean, I, 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 I've, again, I, I, I speak as an advocate. Uh, I speak only in terms of what the data shows, right? If it's not my story, I speak in terms of what the data shows. If there's no data on it, then that, it would be impossible for me to say. There's a, there, there's a saying that addiction does not discriminate uh, based on money, based on this or based on that. Uh, it kind of, the reality is that it kind of does uh, based on, uh, you know, underserved communities get hit harder and this and that. But I have seen no data uh, that would lead me to believe that athletes are more prone to addiction than anyone else. I mean, you have a high, look at lawyers. I can make a legal correlation. When you, you're in high stress, you're in high stress jobs. Uh, lawyers have an alcoholism rate of uh, twice the general public. It was a study that just came out, uh, it came out about five years ago. So why is that? Because uh, we, we, it's a very high stress job and it is a, it is a job where people might be less inclined to allow themselves to open up and be vulnerable, which is needed to begin recovery, right? Because your job depends on it, right? If you, if you suddenly open up, all of these things are triggered. So, okay, so so I'm reverse engineering this question, Brian. I'm answering it for well, myself. The, the answer would be, what an, could an athlete be less likely to admit there's a problem? Sure. Right. Sure, right. because of different protocols that, that may trigger, uh, you know, once they do. And I think that's the thing, like, like Theo and I, the more we speak to folks on this show, the more that we just do advocacy work in general, you start to, and the reason why this show is not just for athletes, right? Like, even though Theo is a former athlete, I worked in professional sports, Darren's a sports reporter, is because there's parallels that we see in the activities of and the, and the behaviors of athletes, the behaviors of sports executives, the behaviors of reporters. And then you, you're a great example in bringing it up with the lawyers. There's something to be said for people from an ambitious, hard-charging, type A type of personality. Where does that develop or is that part of them? And then in that being a, a pro for them, can it also be a con for them at the same time? Well, it, and, and, and it's much more complex than that in my mind, Eric, because – all we see is the product running up and down the court, up and down the mm -hmm. football field. We don't know the story, okay, unless it blows up, right? We may not know the story unless it's publicized. There could be genetics in the family. Uh, we don't know what the person's psychological makeup is. Maybe they're predisposed in other ways. We don't know how they grew up. Uh, there could be all kinds of environmental, barrier, em environmental uh, variables that come in to you know, trigger an addiction, whether it's an athlete or anyone. So all we see is the player. You're making so much money. How could you, I hear see this all the time, right? You, somebody on a Cowboys or this or that with the weed or whatever. How could you jeopardize it? How could you jeopardize it? And then it's people who don't understand addiction. What, again, what's the definition of, of addiction? Obsessive compulsive drug seeking behavior in the face of known consequences. What, what they do doesn't matter. It's the way the brain has been rewired that matters. It's the trauma that has been built up to that point to push them into that behavior that matters. So many variables surround it. Addiction is not a choice. I always say the, the first time I did a line of cocaine, which was influenced by a lot of psychological uh, issues, was a choice. But I didn't do that line of cocaine thinking, you know what? You're going to become suicidal, two trips to a psychiatric hospital, lose three failed marriages, three failed marriages, fail the bar exam, blah, 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 blah. And that's all great. So you're going to do this line of cocaine. Right. But, but here's a bunch of guys who are talking, who are not doctors, who have our own lived experiences with, let's call it addictions, addictive behavior, OCD in certain ways. You said, you know, addiction is not a choice. I agree with you. 
I would like to to, to get, get a, let, let's give opinions around the room, which is, do you believe that there's some people who are genetically wired to be addicts versus I turn to something and I get wired that way because I'm turning away from something else or both? In my uh, Theo, do you want to chime in on that? Because I do have an answer. Uh, I mean. Genetics plays, uh, again, there's data on this, and I don't know, to, but we're sure, uh, could, does, could genetics play a part in addiction? Of course. Of course, you see it all the time, right? Uh, families with alcoholism running through it. Uh, but I also, again, what it, the cause and correlation are not the same. Uh, I, know, I know people from families that are just ravaged by alcoholism who've never, who have chosen never to touch a drop or who can drink socially with no problem. And I know people whose families... Uh, have no addictive history, raises hands, uh, who have ha developed problems with alcohol and cocaine. It's going to depend on the person, Eric. It's going to depend on the situation. I don't think there is any right answer to that. It's, it's going to depend but, but on- it's, But your answer is important, Brian. And then I want Theo to chime in on his opinion, because at least the answer that I'm getting from you goes back to what Theo and I and Darren talk about all the time is mental health and the symptoms of mental health live on a continuum. And anyone is susceptible to it based on this combination of genetic and life Absolutely. experience factors. Absolutely. But, but I, you have a lot of people. The reason why I emphasize that, Brian, is because you have a lot of people who are not in the know in this world of mental health who say, oh, addiction is that thing. You either genetically have this thing called addiction. Now, we know they're wrong, but I, it's so important to keep repeating that because I think so, it's this belief that addict over there because family was an addict. I'm never going to be an addict because I didn't come from a family like that. Yeah, no. I mean, look at me. There is zero history of addiction in my family. I deal with lawyers all the time who have no history but have been through stress, been triggered into problem drinking. And all of a sudden, they're, you know, they're, they qualify to be a quote unquote alcoholic, alcohol use disorder. They, they, they fall within the scale. And so, yeah, I mean, it can be triggered uh, without a history. It, it yep. can. Theo. <clears throat> well, um, you know, when I was going down the wrong road or down the wrong path and everybody was noticing and all that stuff, and, you know, they start sending me to doctors, right, to try and figure out what's wrong. And... You know, I remember sitting in the doctor's office saying, do you have anything for sexual abuse? Do you have something for sexual abuse? Because, you know, I'm in pain, but not physical pain, okay? The kind of pain you can't see. And I really need something for the pain that I can't see. As an athlete, I have a very high pain threshold, so... I can go through all kinds of physical pain till the cows come home. But this emotional pain is eating my lunch right now. And is there something for that? And, and so, you know, we're, we're not going to go through this life being unscathed, not experiencing some sort of adversity uh, in our lives. But what we don't know about avert adversity is, it can be a good thing because what it does is it builds resilience. And the reason why I'm still here is because I, I had a lot of adversity when I was really, really young that built resilience in me. And that's the only thing that kept me alive was being resilient. And so, but we don't talk about that enough. We just talk about, oh my God, my life's shit. I'm fucking shit. All this shit has happened to me. You know what I mean? And 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 therein lies, you know, why all of us got together is because when we got together, we started talking about what happened to us. And when we started talking about what happened, what was happening, like what happened to us, which is what I did when I wrote my book and talked about, you know, my parents and you know my abuser and then i took over the abuse and i abused myself and then boom i had a spiritual awakening and i've been pretty good ever since we don't talk about that enough we don't talk about the solution there is a solution there is a different way we can overcome 
And if you've experienced all this stuff, you, you got you got the blueprint built inside of you. It's called resilience. So tap into that resilience, that honesty, that openness, that willingness. If you can get to that, you're gonna be okay. And some people, it takes long. Some people uh, have different levels of resilience, but resilience can be learned. Some people learn it at different levels, but it's also okay to ask for help in building it, right? Uh, I, I mean, the only way I was able to build resilience was through continuing therapy, lots of therapy, and finally getting honest about myself and peeling back the layers of trauma to that bullied little boy, right? Because I had to, you, I know Theo can understand this until I worked on healing that bullied little boy, uh, old, you know, middle-aged Brian was never going to heal and never be, become. Uh, Brian, you were saying something earlier that I was going to connect with Theo. Like it's so awesome when we have guests on and, and it, and it brings me back to things that Theo or Darren have said. So Theo and I were at an event when we first met in New York city was with comedians. Um, and we were doing our spiel and talking our stories and sharing. And one of the, the, uh, folks in the audience, one of the comedians raised her hand and said, you know, Theo, uh, are you going to be going to therapy for the rest of your life? And he's like, oh, I'm going to be going to therapy for the rest of my life. And I'm completely okay with it. Right. And I just started laughing and I'm, I'm a bit taller than Theo. So he looks up at me like in this, like, what the hell are you laughing at thing? And I said, it's just interesting because if someone said like, Hey, Brian, are you going to be going to the gym the rest of your life? You'd be like, yeah. And they'd be like, wow, you're a warrior. That's incredible. Well, you, know, you know what that would, my answer on therapy would be I'm going tomorrow. Yeah. That, that it would that would in my answer on the gym would be well i'm going tomorrow yeah right because i don't know what my life's going to be why, like in two days why, why is there so much stigma attached to getting help getting your help for yourself like as a culture especially now gender roles are certainly changing for the better but as a male-dominated culture uh in this country it has been looked at as a sign of weakness through the 70s through the 80s i mean my mom struggled with her mental health issues at a time where a woman admitting she suffered from depression or anything else, you could be put in an asylum, right? right, yeah, right. And so we, we've culturally as society, we have been socialized to believe, culturalized to believe that uh, being vulnerable is weak. Being vulnerable means you're a loser. Being vulnerable means you can be taken advantage of. Being vulnerable in a safe space wherever whatever your safe space is is, is strength it's it's courageous yeah and, and, and there lies the magic of healing is yeah. in that space and feeling right. shame is normal right well we feel shame over things we've been through whether it's uh, abuse or you know the bullying and people say don't be ashamed and i always cringe because no shame is a normal body defensive reaction of course you're feeling ashamed the issue is how are we going to channel that what tool, what's in your toolbox to channel that and learn from that and self-reflect on that so it doesn't pull you down into a depressive pit, which I've been in because I deal with depression aside from my recovery. Right. Uh, I've been suicidal in sobriety and uh, and deal with that. Yeah, I, I think the, the we can all relate to what you're you're sharing there. Also, by the way, a, a psych ward uh, survivor myself, um, you know, one of the, the one of the last topics we, we wanted to talk about, Brian, and then, and then want to hear a little bit more about your new book was th there's a lot of and, I, and I, I can I can almost guess what your answer to this is going to be only because of what you shared already. And Theo, like you share how much better you feel when you go to the golf course, right? Like when the weather's nice and you get out of the house, you're a different person. I'm, I'm your good friend now. I notice the difference and you're honest with me about it. Th Brian, you, you you being a lawyer, you see lawyers working in offices and what has happened during the last year and a half out of offices. I am scared shitless. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna share my opinion before you guys do that when I see these companies announcing that they're coming back full virtual indefinitely, that wasn't the way the human condition was meant to be lived, alone and isolated, maybe more on your phone because of it, maybe more laying in your bed looking at your phone because of it. What is your take on what is ideal for offices coming back? And I, again, I know very broad question, but. Well, my take would be, I mean, the law offices, what we call AMLAW and big law, they're coming back. They've extended it some, but they're coming back to offices. And I think you'll see some doing hybrids. But I agree with you 100% that we are uh, connective creatures. And uh, we are, human connection is important for mental health. And I haven't heard of any company 
maybe you've seen stuff that I haven't that has committed to virtual for the you know for life. <laughs> but I've well, seen what, stuff how, how do you how do you define indefinitely, right? Because there's a lot of te- I'm not, I won't I won't mention names, Ryan, but there's a lot of tech companies that that's like the new thing to do is like hey, we see productivity up and, and people can have more control over their time. Dollars over, dollars over mental health. I, I think a lack of human connection uh, can, can, can be problematic and it can certainly be problematic for people already predisposed to mental health issues who may not have told anyone. And every company with enough people is going to have those people. Every company. No yeah. one is immune from this. I, I, I unfortunately, Theo, chime in if you want. I, I see an unfortunate crash coming when we start going back to offices. I work with schools, and you so obviously you're seeing schools because they have to coming back more at a larger percentage than offices are. We're going to end soon here. Is is I'm seeing teachers burning out. I'm seeing students burning out, and we're only a couple of weeks into school right now because. We're, we're not conditioned because we were away from it for so long, right? I, I think in-person is better. Don't get me wrong. I want to see more in-person, but I also don't think that we're taking into account what you two both spoke about over the last hour, which is the cumulative nature of how things affect us. What we just lived through for the last year and a half, for everyone out there to hear, is not an on-off switch that because the pandemic either comes to an end or comes to a near end and we're back to business as usual, that what you just experienced for the last year and a half goes away. That doesn't happen. No, it doesn't. And what we know in the legal profession is that uh, uh, problem drinking rates increased during the pandemic, uh, depression increased from the pandemic. And let's just talk general addiction. There were 93,000 fatal overdoses in 2020. Most of them related to fentanyl contaminated about, what was it, 60 or 70% from fentanyl contaminated overdoses. And I have no doubt there is a strong correlation to loneliness from people who are already struggling or people who may have been tipped into, uh, you know, uh, trying to think of the right words, but I think there is a correlation there uh, with the overdose, the fatal overdose rates have gone so high. Well, and opioids create create the illusion of relationship because yeah. it gives us the worm and fuzzies, right? So and uh, cocaine created the illusion of self confidence oh, yeah. because it gave me uh, I no I no longer looked in the mirror and saw a fat pig that I was called. Yeah. Well, I, I think that leads well into your new book, Brian, um, the ambulance chaser, right? And and. and want to hear a little bit about that and then and then you know as we wrap up talk a little collectively about getting you more involved in what we're doing as a group because it's obvious that we have shared passions in this space well the ambulance chaser is my fiction debut after two memoir style books it's about uh, being from pittsburgh as you might expect it's about a pittsburgh plaintiff's lawyer uh who find who struggles with drug and alcohol addiction and who also finds himself accused of the murder of a uh high school classmate 30 years prior when her remains are discovered. And he is arrested and charged with her murder and he flees and becomes a fugitive to find the one person who happens to be a high school classmate who's gone off the grid who can prove his innocence and save the life of his abducted son. (laughs) That's, that's, uh, excited about it. It's available on Amazon right now for pre-order. Uh, so, uh, you know, go, go on there and check it out. The ambulance chaser. You can go on my YouTube page and watch the trailer. I, Theo's eyes are lighting up because his two books are uh, also like your earlier books, a little bit more personal in nature and self-reflective. And I think Theo's thinking maybe I should start writing some yeah. some, uh, some I, fiction. Out there. I mean, there's you know, I mean, there's a little bit of uh, the, truth the, the in everything. Is Jason is a little bit of me and him, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a little <laughs> bit of all kinds of people I've met in all the different characters, the villains and. And, and and all these different things. So I think uh, when you have rich life experiences, uh, you just turn them into interesting and fun characters. There are no new plots, right? Right. There are only eight or nine plots in the world. And so anything you read or watch on TV has been done from a plot standpoint. But there are fun characters, interesting situations. And I'm That's hoping awesome. the ambulance chaser is both of those. Well, I, I encourage everyone to to go out and get that. And, you know, I'll wrap by saying this again, Brian. I think we were all brought together. We we see what you talk about on social media. We see what you're passionate about. Darren, certainly <laughs> a, a mainstay on social media on a daily basis. Theo has been ratcheting it up a lot more. 
you know, from a, from just an overall mental health standpoint, we're talking out there all the time and trying to move the conversation forward. And so, you know, for everyone who's listening in this episode, bringing Brian on, there were there were some discussions beforehand, just because we love what he's doing in this space. Um, he talks real. I, I uh, Brian, I got to tell you, like I was on the edge of my seat when you were sharing the story about what the girl said to you when you were younger and how the bell-bottom pants got ripped off you because these are not things that people are willing to talk about. People are willing to raise their hand right now in 2021 and say, I have this thing called depression. I have this thing called bipolar. They're not willing to give the details behind the story behind sure. how and, they got there. And and that's where we need to get. Not, everyone is meant, not everyone has to be an advocate, right? People suffer from addiction. They go on through their lives. They want to be lawyers. They want to be hockey players. And they're not, it, it's not sure. their calling and they don't want to share it with the world. And that's okay. But the people who choose to, what you do is give people who are in the shadows permission to share if they want to, if you want to. And that gives other people permission to share if they want to. One person at a time, one person, one life. That's that's the key, man. I, I, I so appreciate that message to end on. And for anyone out there, hopefully Brian sharing his story is more reason that you feel comfortable. You heard something in his story that resonated with you. Whether you're sharing, by the way, with your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother, or you want to get on stage the way that Brian does, we don't push people into sharing in a certain way. All we say is getting it out there is better than holding it in yeah. and allowing it to circulate. And just remember, whatever you're going through, you are enough, right? There is a, You are enough, whatever you, whatever you look like, whatever uh, your body type is. And if you don't think you are, you know, talk, talk to someone, talk to your parents, talk to someone and start the process of figuring out why. Yep. Well yeah. said. Why um, is the why is the key? <laughs> the why is key. Well, Darren, uh, uh, as you all might have heard, speaking of uh, young daughters and young women, um, had to go take care of uh, putting his daughter to bed. So, so we wrapped up the show without him, but wanted to say on behalf of Darren, Theo, Brian, it's been our pleasure to have you on. It was my honor to come on. Thank you. I truly appreciate being asked. Of course, man. And, and we'll look forward to seeing everyone next week on another episode of We're All a Little Crazy. You just heard We're All a Little Crazy, brought to you by the hashtag Same Here Global Mental Health Movement and the Hockey Podcast Network.